0: This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 64, part B.
1: You're listening to Negotiate X Radio
0: We are continuing our conversation with Logan Kessler, engagement leader with Vantage Partners. If you haven't already checked out part A of this show, be sure to do that first. Let's jump into the conversation with Logan. What advice do you have, Logan? So some organizations may not be completely bought in, but listeners of this podcast can be bought in on the importance of negotiations. How do those leaders convince their team or what metrics, what should they do to make sure their team are preparing to to enter the negotiations that they may have day in, day out. So how can we get the leader to to get involved in that process? Yeah,
2: I think one powerful thing. So a couple of thoughts. One powerful thing is taking a look at results you achieve from the negotiations you prepare for and the negotiations you don't. And it's not going to be a perfect apple to apple comparison, but I would be willing to bet a pretty good amount of money you will start to see patterns and trends over the negotiations you prepare for and the outcome you achieve. And by the way, when I'm talking about outcome, I don't mean just financial metrics, right? I mean both measuring on a strategic level, on a relationship level, on an operational level. There are many different metrics to measure success in negotiation. But when you look across those outcomes, you're going to see differences. And I think highlighting the additional value that you are able to achieve by preparing is a really good way to sell that idea and practice into the organization. It's a really good way to motivate your team to say, look, if you take an hour or two hours to prepare, you're gonna be able to achieve this much more and that's gonna have this XYZ impact on your performance, on your bonus, on your career progression, whatever it may be. I, I think the other thing to think about is leaders asking their teams to show them their preparation materials before going into a negotiation. I, th- I would describe that as a best practice from a management perspective. If you create the expectation that your teams must submit to you, whatever the preparation process is, right? There's different templates and processes, whatever works for your organization, but set that up as an expectation, as a role and responsibility for someone on the team. That's a really good way a, to drive that practice into a normal habit for your teams. It's a really good way to increase alignment between management and negotiators on kind of what they expect, what is their leeway as a negotiator, what authority do they have to decide? And it's a really good way to creatively brainstorm what additional opportunities may be possible here.
0: And then how can someone, like how can a leader, you know, another thing that obviously Aaron and I have used in our military experience and then I've also used during some of our training and consulting engagements, but I'm interested to get your take on it, is how can a leader set up the rehearsal process as part of the preparation process. How can they make sure that they're actually thinking about the other person, get into the other person's shoes? Can you elaborate on any of that? Yeah, I mean, you know,
2: there's there's a bunch of different techniques from a learning perspective and preparation process, right? There's just simple role playing, right? Just take 5-10 minutes and, you know, with a colleague, say, okay, you sit in the the external counterpart side, I'm going to run a couple lines by you, get some feedback. Obviously, there's more robust techniques around red team type exercises where you actually engage in it. You can actually do like full team role plays. I was just with a client uh, internationally a couple of months ago where I went down and we took two full days to help them prepare their negotiation with the government over some market access issues. And we took two full days to like run through the preparation process, do full role plays, get debriefs and coaching. And it totally changed. Not only the mindset that these negotiators were bringing into what they previously described as a very contentious, you know, knockdown fight type negotiation, into feeling much more prepared and optimistic about the value that they might be able to achieve.
3: So many great examples there in terms of getting prepared. I wanted to ask: Have you been involved with either helping clients prepare playbooks? Do you see much out there in the, in playbooks? Where are those sort of things helpful? for negotiation preparation as well as execution, obviously. Any thoughts on the, kind of the playbook building?
2: Yeah, definitely. So we do a lot of playbooks, playbooks, toolkits, right? They're, they go by many different names and many different versions. But I, I think the biggest thing with a playbook is that it needs to be robust enough to be helpful, but not so prescriptive that it takes the ability of the negotiator to think on their feet and be agile in a negotiation. And so, as you're thinking about playbooks and the different tactics or strategies, right, a couple of things that we find really helpful. First is just identification of the dynamics, right? What, who are the counterparts? What are the challenges? What does this negotiation look like? What are the factors here by which I can kind of type this negotiation? Then given that, right, you want to leave enough leeway in for folks to be able to customize, right? We're not creating a script. We're not creating, it's not quite like, you know, a football playbook where there's 200 plays that we just run, you know, 28 blue. Once you've got an idea of the context you're getting into in the negotiation, you want to provide different tips, advice, strategies to to approach it. And they have to be customizable because no playbook is ever going to be so robust or so exhaustive that it captures every possible scenario or outcome. You've got to give guardrails, advice, helpful strategies and tactics for, for negotiators to be able to take on board, but then make it their own. They've got to be able to think freely and creatively.
3: So it's still a start point. Uh, and it sounds like to kind of prompt some of the what we want to see at the negotiation table, the creativity, the investigation, the, the listening and so forth.
2: I'd say probably half, if not more, of the most helpful content you can have in a playbook is provocative questions, right? You want to get the negotiator to think about the different scenarios, challenges, unforeseen obstacles that could arise, and how can we prepare for those eventualities?
0: Hey, Aram, so I got a question for you. I know that... Oh, no. Oh, no. I know. Now you're on the hot seat. Hey, so I know for your MBA students that you actually like to record them, I was wondering how effective that is and and letting them understand how they show up to a negotiation. And if either of you have ever used that with any of your consulting engagements or anything like that and what the outcomes of that were.
3: Yeah. I'm going to go real quick. Cause I, I want to hear, uh, I want to hear Logan's response. Plus, plus he, he's our guest. So I wanted to enter. I will tell you this is that whenever, whenever we do the recording, we do it every, every term uh, to do one, I encourage him to do it more. I don't think any of them ever take me up on that. There's always a groan of pain of, I, I've got to record this and then you want me to go back and watch it and then analyze myself, right? And there's this groan of pain. I also find that it tends to be the turning point in the course for many students who say, wow, I learned so much through watching myself negotiate for that, that hour. That's, well, that's what I sound like. Those are the things I say and do. And, and so it becomes incredibly helpful. Logan, do you use that with clients, and what are your what are your observations?
2: All the time, and this is uh, this is hitting a sore spot for me right now. Actually, I'm uh, I'm flying out this afternoon, as I mentioned. I'm doing a, a day long workshop tomorrow with a client. In the workshop, we're actually using a video in which I was an actor to analyze negotiation dynamics. So I've got, not only do I have to watch myself on video, I've got to watch myself playing a poor negotiator in front of a room full of clients that are then gonna critique and tell me all the things I did wrong. So I I feel like you're just kind of poking the bear a little bit, but no, as Aram said, it's uh, video, watching yourself on video is an incredibly powerful learning technique. You never know fully what you sound like, your body language, your facial expressions. The words you use uh, until you watch it back, you've got this kind of rosy view, or maybe overly negative view. Honestly, it can, it can swing both ways of how you are showing up at a negotiation table. But having that kind of objective look back at yourself, as uncomfortable as it may be sometimes, uh, is really powerful. So I would recommend it to to any you know budding, improving, growing, experienced negotiators. Kind of a best practice.
3: Yeah, I I'll give a, give a quick example on this too, and then we move on. But I had a student in, in the debrief of the, the case that we negotiated before going back and watching the video, the student was like, it was so frustrated because they said, I kept trying to get to interest. I wanted to understand what they needed, why they needed it. I was trying to get their motivations. And then we went back and I, I watched my students' videos and every question that that student was asking was, so what is it you want? What, what is it you really want? Okay, what 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 would you be willing to give up to get what you want? And they were all positional questions, and it was just so eye opening to say, oh, the reason I wasn't getting more in the responses was because of the, the nature of the questions I was asking. I was getting answers, I was getting the right answer for the question I was getting. I just was asking the wrong
2: question. To that point, Aaron, it's, um, you know, we, we teach different models, different language frameworks for negotiation, right? And they they have the words, right? The words, the interest, options, legitimacy, relationship, communication, alternative, commitment, whatever the words may be, they connote a certain meaning, behavior, or objective, right? But it's not just the words. You can't just say, so tell me what your interests are right? You've got to, you've got to adopt it. You've got to make it your own. You've got to adapt it to the context. And you come off, you know, well, tell me what your interests are. Okay. I think I have your three interests here listed in bullets. And now we're going to move to generating options, you know, in spirit. Yeah, that's great. But you got to make it sound like, you know, a human, not a robot. Otherwise chat GPT is coming for all of our jobs.
3: (laughs) That's another conversation we could have for another day. Yeah, I think it's absolutely to the point. Well, we listen. We've spent a lot of time talking about getting well prepared for negotiation, and I know we all we're all know that equally important is the review process uh, and the lessons that can be gleaned. and And I, I'm going to assume that those organizations that you work with that are really invested, kind of in negotiation as a corporate capability, competitive advantage, invest in the the kind of lessons learned process. What what have you seen work for leaders to pull those lessons out and make sure they get reintegrated for future negotiations?
2: Yeah. So so a couple of thoughts. Definitely the more mature negotiations from a the more mature organizations from a negotiation, a lot of Xi'an words in there, the the what they're able to do is implement it after actual reviews as a regular practice, right? Not just after the negotiations that went really well, the negotiations that went really poorly. The ones that, you know, just every fifth or so negotiation because they had time, they're doing it as a regular practice. And when we talk about an after-action review, we're talking about a couple of things here. One is the process. So how did we prepare over time? Um, How did we conduct the negotiation? And how did we review it? Did we create a process that enabled us, that put us in a situation, in a position to succeed? right and there are lessons to be learned there even in the the most successful negotiations that's the process point that you want to take a look at the other point is the the outcome right the substantive outcome and when we talked about we talked about just a little bit ago outcome means more than just how much money did i get right it's more than just the financial metrics it's talking about the strategic value that we were able to to achieve sometimes your objective is to position yourself into a new market as a new entrant and you're willing to give on other metrics to get in that position, right? Strategic value. Sometimes it's operational value. Do we negotiate and come up with a commitment that we're actually able to live by, commit to and operationalize, right? What does the handoff look like? What do the actual realistic commitments mean? The next is from a real uh, relationship perspective. Did we come out with, you know, healthier relationships than when we went in or did we get the money we wanted, but those guys hate us now and they're never going to want to work with us again. And so looking at the outcome from a holistic perspective is really important. The other thing I'll say about kind of after action reviews and just the ability to continue improving as an organization and how you negotiate is giving your negotiators the ability to fail or say no and walk away from a deal. One, uh, one client that I work with is, you know, I won't tell his story, but he's got a story about the best deal he ever negotiated was the one he walked away from because the agreement, the yes was there. But after looking at it, it would have you know set up a terrible precedent for this organization in the market and with this partner, and they would have stood to, you know risk losing quite a bit of money over time. And this negotiator had the ability to tell their manager, no, we're not going to say yes to this. I know we've been spending time on it. we've been sending resources. It's something we want. But this deal, this negotiated outcome, does not reach does not match the objectives we are trying to achieve here. And we need to be able to walk away from that. And being able to learn from the deals we walk away from is as important as the deals we say yes to. And reinforcing negotiators' ability to do that only makes the organization more effective in using negotiation as a tool to achieve their strategic imperatives, as well as increase the leverage of negotiators' because they're able to use and exercise their BATNA, right? Best alternative to a negotiated agreement for folks that may have not heard that acronym before.
3: And I think that's so difficult to do sometimes, right? We we fall into a trap, which we believe, and, and you're countering this, you said it so well, we believe the, the purpose of a negotiation is to reach an agreement. And we can't go a little step further and say, actually, the purpose of a negotiation is create good choices for ourselves. And sometimes that choice means walking away. And if I'm a leader, have I equipped my negotiator um, or the team uh, to be able to walk away. And and that's really difficult sometimes.
2: Particularly in a sales context, right? Um, sales organizations have, you know, this isn't a criticism. It's just a, you know, a, a result of the world in which they live and how they're motivated and scented, is it's, you know, walking away from a customer, a potential deal is really hard, not only for the individual, but for the organization, right? That's just not how sales organizations are motivated. And so that often looks like their alternative is, well, I can't say no, it's just a matter of how much can I get internal approval to drop the price or the services or whatever it is, right? Make it a little sweeter. And so recognizing the macro BATNA of walking away versus the micro BATNA of hitting pause, coming back later, bringing in more players to a negotiation, right? Not all alternatives are created equal.
3: As you were talking about kind of the metrics and the review process of the outcome, and you talked about kind of that you were talking about the ability to, to actually commit to something and kind of execute on it. And this is this idea of the value of implementation. We know there's a lot of deals that get negotiated that the value we thought we were creating never sees the light of day. Can you talk a little bit more about why you advise negotiators to to negotiate with this idea, this concept of whether it's an implementation mindset or with what execution is going to look like? in mind, and that the negotiator's job doesn't really end at the table, but ends when the deal is fulfilled.
2: Yeah. I mean, the examples are everywhere, right? I mean, how many um, mergers and acquisitions fail because, or at least are not able to realize the value they envisioned at the negotiation table because implementation, assimilation, integration of the organizations just didn't happen, right? It's because so often the folks who are negotiating the deal, often people in finance, and legal are not thinking about the downstream operations of how to actually make these companies work. And often it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's certainly not bad intent. More often than not, it's just not including enough or the right people at the table to think through these measures. You know, you see it, an industry that does this exceptionally well is the oil and gas industry, right? To make these projects viable, they have to look at it over the 20, 30, 40, 50 year timeline. And when you are looking at a negotiated outcome, thinking 50 years in advance, your whole mindset and mentality is totally different than if all you're focusing on is getting ink on the contract and then you're off to the next thing and it's someone else's problem. And it shows up and time and time again in, in how much value organizations are actually able to get out of the negotiation. As you said, Aaron, so, so well, is the purpose of negotiation is not to get an agreement the purpose of negotiation is to achieve some outcome that you would not be able to achieve on your own or create options for yourself, right? And that's that's a really important mindset shift if you really want to get true value over
0: time in negotiations. As a career negotiator, especially given the work you did with the Peace Corps, do you have an example that you can share of a negotiation failure that you learned from?
2: <laughs> uh, so I'll share a failure that comes to mind so one of the projects I was doing in the Peace Corps, actually, and this was this was years before I was working for Vantage and, you know, and then the expert that I am today, so I never make these mistakes now, never happens. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we were working on bringing a a water aqueduct system to the village that I was living in. And, you know, there was like the natural occurring well up in the mountains, you had to pipe that down to a tank, then you had to pipe it and like to each individual home so they had clean drinking water, right? No brainer, this is gonna be totally easy. Well, you know, after getting the funding, after getting, you know, most of the community leaders on board with the project, we start mapping it out. And this is, you know, over acres of of space and land. Well, you know, it just so happens that because of the altitude and the direction you need to do the pipes, we needed to build the tank on one specific part of land. Just so happens that plot of land belonged to someone who was not as well integrated into the community, shall we say, as some others and so when we brought this idea to them right it was a flat out no get off my porch or you know what it is type conversation and so you know we, we thought we had the slam dunk with the community leaders different workers we had the funding to the project but we hadn't fully taken into account all of the stakeholders that we needed to get agreement from and we didn't involve that person early enough in the process and so to the point about preparation and wasting time if we had just included this one individual earlier on in the conversations treated them with ultimately just the respect that they wanted. It wasn't, they didn't want money. They didn't want to like deprive the village of water. They just wanted some respect. And if we had just done that by inviting them to two more meetings, we would have saved probably three months in this overall process. Eventually we were able to bring this person around and, and bring water to the village. But you know, it's just another example of preparation, thinking about who is at the table, who do you need to involve when and how.
3: Yeah, I think that's an interesting example of even like kind of what what we do around stakeholder mapping and the importance of kind of doing some of that work up front of all the different parties to a negotiation. It also reminded me of because of your role, I don't know if you've ever read the book, the ugly American Um, it's one of my favorites for folks that are going out to do this sort of work. I read it before going to Afghanistan and part of that story there was the difference between coming up with a solution that's workable for the, the people that we're trying to help that actually addresses the problem fully, right? You know, versus just a solution that is never going to see, never going to be effective. It's never going to work because, you know, because this party that needs to be on board isn't integrated in the community, and right. So it's it's like understanding the real nature of of problems, and it's easy sometimes to ignore that stuff. It just as you, as you t- talked about it, that remind me of. Of that book, The Ugly American. It's where the phrase came from, like the people like, oh, ugly American traveling across, you know, other shores. The best negotiator in this was actually, he was physically ugly. His face was like pockmarked or whatever and stuff. But he was actually, The Ugly American is actually the hero of the story. So it's, um, it's, it's a good book. You'll enjoy it. It would take you, you're a pretty smart guy. It'd probably take you a day to read.
0: We asked you about a failure that you had and appreciate um, everything that you shared with us there. When at least give you the opportunity to explain a success that you've had as a negotiator.
2: I guess I'll just kind of stick on the, the personal brain here because it's so fresh of mind too. So I just bought a home actually. And it just so happened that I was introduced to the sellers before they listed the home. And so it was an off-market deal, which was great, but also complicating or potentially complicating the negotiation was that the sellers were very good friends of a mutual friend. So this was much more on the line than just, you know, buying selling a house. There were friendships, relationships, reputations at risk here. And so the, the sellers were expecting a very contentious lowball type negotiation where we tried to lowball them and get the get the, you know, the house for as low and cheap as we possibly could. But fortunately, in kind of the, the setup, the first call we had with them when we were moving forward, I just kind of paused and said, hey... You know, let me just acknowledge that we're not just buying and selling a house here. We've got mutual friends. You've got a second mortgage. We're trying to get out of our apartment. There's a lot going on here than just the price we're going to buy and sell, right? There's timing and everything too. So let's just acknowledge that there's a lot of stuff going on here that we need to figure out and, and try to figure out what is going to work best for everyone here. And it really changed the whole tone of the conversation and negotiation, even from prior emails. That we had with these folks, and and ultimately, we were able to to get an outcome that everyone's really happy with. I'm that everyone was really happy with it. So, you you might have been hoping for a more you know professional <laughs> big you know Fortune <laughs> N type story. I have here, but that's the most near and tear <laughs> negotiation you've heard.
0: No, that's great.
3: Hey, listen, any anyone who's listening who's ever you know bought their first home can certainly appreciate that in uh, and, and the complexities. We like to hear how these skills show up, right? It's it's one thing to be the master trainer in the room. It's another thing when you're trying to practice these in your own own life. Before I go into a wrap-up question, you mentioned kind of the email piece. You know, we 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 are living in a very diverse world when it comes to modalities of where how negotiations are occur occur. Do you have any thoughts on or advice for listeners on you know, when to shift from email, when is an email appropriate, when to shift from it, when to go to a different modality? Is there any, are there any things that you try to practice?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think just recognizing the issue is so important because, you know, based on the type of interaction we're having, we get more or less information, right? When we are in person, in a room with someone, we have information from the words they're using, facial expression, their body language, their tone of voice, their volume of voice, right? There's just so much we can pick up on. When you switch that to like, you know, as basic as like a text message where you've got 40 words, you're losing the tone, you're losing facial expression, body language, all of those things, right? And so in the absence of that direct information that you have, your mind will fill in with all kinds of assumptions, often unhelpful ones about what the other person intended to mean in and that, in that message they were trying to send. And so, you know, the way we like to think about it, right? Like every good consultant, we've got our nice two by two or three by three grid here, <laughs> uh, where on one axis is kind of, you know, complexity of the, the issue that we're trying to discuss. And on the other axis is like importance, right? And if you're down in this bottom left corner where it's not a particularly complex issue and it's not a particularly critical issue that needs to be resolved, Something like text or email is okay, right? That can be more efficient. But as you move up into that kind of northeastern corner where issues get more complex and more critical, you do want to move into modes of communication that allows for more nuanced back and forth, right? So that's when you're getting into phone is better often than just like text or email. Video like this is better than phone. In person is better than video. And so you just want to be conscious, and this is part of a preparation, honestly, as you, you're thinking about different interests or different options you're going to generate, right? Communication, one of the elements we talk about so much, this is something you want to be thinking about. What are the ways and modes we're going to be interacting with? Because to get it wrong can have really high costs.
3: Logan, as we get ready to wrap up, any final thoughts or key takeaways you'd like to leave our, our listeners with? Or if you had one piece of advice in terms of what can they be doing to become more effective negotiators and influencers, what would you advise them?
2: Yeah, I I think two things come to mind. The first one we already touched on a bit, but I really just want to kind of underscore it here in that kind of starting with the mindset and assumptions about what negotiation is, right? The purpose of negotiation, as we've said, is not to get an agreement. The purpose of negotiation is to achieve an outcome that you would not have been able to achieve on your own. And when you start to think about negotiation that mu- that manner, it really kind of opens up the world of possibilities about kind of what negotiation is, how do we use it, and how do we use it well. Um, and just shifting that appreciation in your head brings you from kind of a conflict-oriented mm-hmm. event that we kind of call negotiation and kind of what we see in the movies to kind of a strategic process where we use that to achieve our our strategic imperatives and objectives. And that's a really important mindset shift that all the behaviors and strategies follow from. The second thing I would say is being able to negotiate is a learned skill, not an inherent capability. By adopting a growth mindset and recognizing that every negotiation, every interaction is a learning opportunity, not a direct kind of evaluation on your inherent capabilities as a negotiator gives you the ability to continuously improve by learning from your mistakes. And, you know, you you hear from folks like me and folks much more qualified than me that, you know, are experts in negotiation, but we all started somewhere, right? We were not born expert negotiators. We started somewhere, we learned and we continuously learned. And all of the mistakes that I advise my clients on, I make them too right? I'm human. We all get things wrong from time to time. It's being able to spot the errors, understand the errors within some kind of system or framework so that you can make sense of them and be specific about what it is you did wrong and what you could have done differently, and then applying a different strategy in the future. And that's how we get
3: better every day. Logan, thanks. Thanks for those insights. So much to take away from today. And before I kick it over to Nolan, I just want to say again, thank you. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for working through the tech issues to just to talk to us and share your insights with us. So much around mindset. Even I, I, all the thing I'd probably put on is whether it's in preparation or whether it's in ensuring we're in aligning incentives. Think broadly beyond just fine financial metrics. Right. Think broadly about other things of the the implementation of it, the relationship, all these other components that tie into what's going to yield a a very effective negotiation. Thanks. Hope to see you soon for having me.
0: Well, that's it for us on today's podcast. Appreciate you listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. And We'll see you in the next episode.
1: Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.